Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Yao. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Saurabh Chauhan is a rocket internet veteran who has led two of their portfolio ventures in Asia. As managing director, he launched and built Daraz Sri Lanka from zero to over 60 employees and achieved 3x growth in gross merchandise value every year in this frontier market in partnership with strategic brands such as Unilever and Hutch. Daraz Group was one of the fastest growing e-commerce marketplaces across five countries in APEC and was acquired by Alibaba in 2018 for an estimated $200 million. More recently, Saurabh led a turnaround for Rocket Internet's Day, a beauty services platform, where he successfully raised seven-digit bridge funding from leading European investors and pivoted the business towards a SaaS-enabled marketplace. Prior to Rocket Internet, he worked in management consulting at McKinsey & Company across India, US, Australia, and Dubai. He is also a mentor at Iterative VC, a wise combinator-style accelerator focused exclusively on Southeast Asia, where he advises startups on international expansion and scaling marketplace commercial operations. Saurabh completed his bachelor's in business from SS College of Business Studies, Delhi University, and cleared level two of the Chartered Financial Analyst Program. His hobbies are tracking, reading, and gaming. You can connect with him at LinkedIn in our show notes at linkedin.com slash in slash Saurabh dash Chauhan. So good to have you, Saurabh. It's a pleasure to hear your story out here. It's great to be here, Jeremy. One of the most interesting things is that you have such a long history, not just as a consultant, but also with Rocket Internet which is all in the business of globalizing and localizing businesses. You've had a tremendous set of experiences as a general manager and as a leader and in the turnaround. You know, I personally can't wait to hear your insights. Yeah, I'd love to share them as well. Yeah, for the viewers and for the listeners out there, what's your journey? Sure. So I, I had a slightly uncontemporary background where, wherein I was uh, slated to you know jump into engineering early on in my career. And uh, that's the path I ended up not choosing, much to the disappointment of my parents. I ended up pursuing my bachelor's in business from one of the best undergrad colleges in India. Started off my career, did, did a bit of social enterprise building while I was in university, but effectively started off my full-time career with, with McKinsey. It was a great sort of path to set myself on. I mean, I still remember when I was in university, it was like one of the dream jobs to go to. My, my PST started at 7.30 a.m. in the morning, and my final offer letter came after five rounds of interviews at, at 9.30 in the night on the same day, and I could never forget that experience. But yeah, once I started at McKinsey, I had was part of this super empowering environment, and I ended up doing engagements that took me to the proverbial ends of the world from Alaska to Australia. Through my network at McKinsey, I got to know about Rocket Internet and uh, the cool stuff that they were doing back in 2015, building e-commerce marketplaces in, in frontier markets in South Asia. 
I effectively left at that opportunity and decided that on one flight, when I was coming back from US back to Delhi, I realized, uh, and this was when I was working for an e-commerce client engagement. I looked at their projections. I looked at the massive upside that these guys were projecting over the next, you know, 10, 20 years um, and, and the growth that they were eyeing. And it sound, seemed super logical to me that, you know, a similar opportunity would exist in, in a market like Sri Lanka. And it was something that I really wanted to, you know, be a part of. This country was coming out of two and a half decades of civil war. It had all the right social literacy rate, mobile penetration rate, everything was great. And I wanted to be the part of the team that sets up the Flipkart or the Amazon of of Sri Lanka. And and I completely just jumped into that opportunity. And I guess since then, there wasn't any looking back, relocated my entire life to to Colombo in Sri Lanka and built a team from five people all the way to 60 over two years. We were subsequently acquired by Alibaba. I even sort of missed one of your previous guests on your podcast, Chia, because I literally left a month before he he actually came to the Sri Lankan market to do his internship. And I ended up moving to Singapore then and doing another piece for, which was the turnaround piece for the rocket internet portfolio venture called Vanity for about a little over two years. And now I'm basically since April, uh, exploring new ideas, spending quite some time mentoring startup founders who are looking to build B2B, B2C marketplaces in in emerging markets or in Singapore. That's awesome. You have such an experience on the frontier markets and e-commerce. How did you personally get started on your tech journey? Sure. I was working on e-commerce client engagement at McKinsey. I realized that there was this massive upside that this domain presented. And the same trends that were true for India were on a different scale, probably a a smaller scale. Also, they held true for Sri Lanka. So I made the decision that, okay, let's, you know, instead of spending another few years or another few months at McKinsey, let's just jump into the startup world. And uh, I had a chat with my parents who thought I was batshit crazy for taking such a risky path. And in order to placate them, I decided to de-risk this decision as far as I could by sort of getting a deferred admission into a consulting fetus business school. But once I had de-risked that, I basically packed up my bags and relocated to Colombo. Uh, This was in October of 2015. As a 23-year-old, I basically now started my journey of you know, having zero experience in leadership and having zero experience in managing a team, I started, you know, building out my team. I started, you know, understanding the ins and outs of, of marketplace, going to the local market and meeting vendors over there, onboarding them, understanding how it was to, to do real work on the ground rather than just making fancy slides and pages and decks that I was used to of making at, at McKinsey. In, in the beginning, I honestly felt that I had bitten off more than I could chew. And uh, I was honestly struggling with really wrapping my head around how to grow my team and how to achieve the KPIs that were set by the group CEO for my market. Over those two years, was super lucky in building a very strong initial team. And, uh, you know, together we grew from zero to, to over a million in monthly you know sales and are now today one of the biggest e-commerce companies in Sri Lanka. And then I view the time I spent there as an incredibly great learning experience. We created value for small and medium enterprise uh, vendors that we onboarded onto our platform and really helped those entrepreneurs to harness the power of technology and, and you know approach a wider marketplace. Why is leadership so important in frontier markets? 
I think this this holds true for almost any market, uh, not necessarily frontier markets. But when I was an MD at Rocket, I saw this for myself that a marketplace model, business model, has a lot of moving elements. There's this commercial aspect where you have to do a vendor acquisition, vendor management. There are operations on the logistics and customer service side. There are marketing, product related things. And without a common mission uniting the organization, it's impossible to get anywhere. When, when I flew in on an economy flight to Sri Lanka, I was basically asked to manage a team of six people. I knew that I wouldn't be able to rally people behind uh, something without making sure that everybody was united under a common vision, simply because uh, I think my core competency was in breaking down problems and approaching things analytically. And this was something that I felt that I would sort of learn along the way. I, I was super inspired to you know, make sure that I come across as a good leader who not just was able to paint the big picture for, for my people, but also to really understand what were the unique motivations that I could understand you know, and, and their unique backgrounds that I could understand in order to make sure that I had a buy-in from them. Could you share what hurdles you personally faced and how you overcame them? So as a 23-year-old, I was being called to become a managing director for a e-commerce marketplace in Sri Lanka. You know, like I mentioned, I was uh, adept at approaching things from an analytical perspective, but that was not necessarily the best way or the only way of, of approaching such a big objective or such a big task. That's when I basically decided to take a step back and, you know, think why wasn't this as effective as I had personally thought it should have been. And, and I realized I was effectively missing out the entire, you know, human aspect to it. And I said, okay, fine. What, what is the most honest, you know, motivation that I had, you know, to come here? And it was that I need to build or I need to be behind the team that builds the Flipkart or the Amazon of Sri Lanka. And I think that's the core vision that I then ran with and tried to um, share with my team you know, try to get their buy-in on this common goal. And then after sharing this in a town hall with the team, I think things became a lot easier in terms of how much the team was engaged in in uh, sort of, you know, building out this, this shared vision. They actually were excited to imagine that, you know, in a few years, we could be potentially the biggest e-commerce marketplace in Sri Lanka, and we could be creating impact at scale. And I guess subsequently, when Alibaba did end up acquiring Daraz, uh, I think, to some great extent, our, our efforts were validated and our hard work was validated. Who are your role models in real life? So my mom, she's been my role model ever since I was super little. She has a very interesting background. She went on to pursue her uh, bachelor's and master's in science. And this is in an era wherein if you, you belong to the female gender, let alone uh, pursuing higher education, you're not really welcome in the in the workforce to begin with. This is belonging to about 40 years back. And uh, she always narrated, you know, some of the challenges that she had to overcome to actually get an opportunity to get that education and not just challenges from society in general, but even the, the challenges she had to face within her family uh, in terms of how conservative her family was and how hard she had to fight to actually pursue the education that she wanted and to actually take up the jobs she wanted. So I think it was super inspiring to to learn her journey. And also, you know, growing up, I would see her uh, manage her professional life, manage her household chores that she would do, and then somehow magically find time to sit with me and help me with my homework. And uh, just seeing that day in, day out consistently was super inspiring to me. And now that I'm older, I'm able to truly appreciate how much sacrifices uh, she had to make. 
to make sure that you know i was set in the right direction and i was moving in the right direction in my own life awesome you've been a mentor for so many startups you know over your career what's a common misconception that you've encountered in e-commerce and marketplaces Sure. I think this is probably more uh, in general for all startups or all startup founders. They believe that, you know, if they are able to build a hiring team or a top management team that is having very strong either educational pedigree or very strong consulting or investment banking background, they increase their probability of success greatly, which I saw while I was on the ground, you know, building a marketplace in Sri Lanka or in Singapore. It does not necessarily hold true. People who are coming from very diverse backgrounds have the right street smarts that are actually required to build out a successful e-commerce marketplace, whether it's on the commercial side or operational side and i think that was something that coming from a background where i was associated with mckinsey that wasn't something that was obviously true to me and i kind of held on to that bias for some time until i actually saw the data points that effectively disproved it i think more specifically while you're building out a marketplace um, and this holds true more for developing markets the you you really struggle with the the problems of working capital especially on the vendor side and the the cycles of fulfillment uh, meaning you know as as e-commerce marketplace i used to think that hey we we're getting new customers for you and that in itself is a great incentive for you to come to our platform but we very quickly realized that you know there is a genuine working capital problem that small vendors the long tail of any marketplace faces and the the cycles within which you can pay these vendors is super critical to them and those cycles cannot be super short unless your fulfillment times are very fast as well because if you can't get the money from the customer it's really hard to pay the vendor we realized that one of the biggest bottlenecks we were facing was actually logistics and not just vendor relations or vendor management so one often commonly held misconception is that you just need to get the supply side going and you just you know good marketplace get the supply and demand chicken and egg thing without really understanding that logistics or rather the money cycle is probably the bigger impediments to to scaling up a successful marketplace especially true in markets like uh, sri lanka or any developing markets where cash on delivery is a more prominent form of payments how have you seen successful logistics come into play i think thanks to all the amazing leaps and movements that have happened in the e-commerce space over the last decade thanks to lazada in southeast asia there are in south asia jumia in africa there have been a lot of investments that have gone into creating robust logistics so you know there are unicorns now in in southeast asia and they've been able to successfully create a very dense hub and spoke model that makes logistics a lot better back in 2015 and this is specific to sri lanka we used to struggle with almost three week fulfillment times to deliver products in the northern and the eastern regions of the country but now those same fulfillment times have fallen down drastically because of the increase in demand and volumes that is actually moving through such channels it has created opportunities for a, a lot of logistics players to get into the market make structural infrastructure investments and reduce the fulfillment times it was a great time and probably still is for uh, logistics players who are effectively selling the pickaxes and shovels for the e-commerce industry we've really seen you know rocket internet be you know a successful player as part of that global spread of marketplaces and targeting and entry and growth within frontier markets so what's the magic secret sauce here 
Right. I think uh, most often people think that the secret sauce is that they end up hiring a lot of McKinsey consultants in their management team or investment bankers, and that is why they win. But that's honestly not, that's super far from the truth. I think uh, Rocket, in at least in the last decade, has been fairly smart about understanding what are the proven business models that have worked in, you know, let's say some of the Western markets, and what are the high-risk markets where they can effectively apply the same proven business model. And those markets are high-risk because of different reasons. You know, there could be a lack of certain supporting infrastructure like logistics. There could be lack of payment support or payment system support. Or it could just be uh, that those countries are, let's say, relatively less politically sound or have a less uh, robust legal framework, which are some of the aspects that investors that make big ticket investments, they effectively look for. So in a sense, they've been super courageous. It, it, it requires a high level of courage to invest in markets like Pakistan, Bangladesh, Myanmar, Sri Lanka, and Nepal, all the way back in 2014, 2015, they were smart enough to make those bold decisions when they did. They were able to get pretty handsome dividends from those uh, decisions. You've worked across multiple frontier markets and you're familiar with that diffusion of technology and business model from developed economies to developing ones. How do you see that continuing to play out I think more recently, and probably this is true for China, I completely agree that for the last decade, there were a lot of proven uh, American business models that were effectively being copied as they were in Silicon Valley and being copied to, let's say, Southeast Asian market or other developing markets. There are a lot of business models that have worked incredibly well in China and are proven in China, but are not necessarily taking off in the West. I guess one example is the Pinduoduo group buying uh, social commerce app that is phenomenally successful in China. I think their latest reports came out and they were one of the most valued companies uh, in, in China. But executing a similar group buying business model in US is probably a lot harder or even to do so in Southeast Asia is, is fundamentally harder because we've not been able to build a very robust logistics infrastructure or a payment system that is required to actually execute such a model at scale. The, the fact that you know we can just apply Western models in the East, that age is over. I think it's now more about identifying for you know, specific markets. What are, what are the pain points that exist? And what are some of the unique ways in which we can solve those pain points given the realities that exist in those markets? You've mentioned a lot of supporting infrastructure, you know, logistics, payments. What are the other factors that people may take for granted as they consider country versus country, region versus regional differences? A robust distribution channel is something that people often end up taking for granted. And just coming out outside of the logistics and payments infrastructure, people often also assume that there is going to be a strong ability to buy any brand in any market. But it's super, super hard to source some brands in markets where those brands have no presence whatsoever. Sometimes marketplaces have to invest in becoming authorized distributors for you know, virtually very big global brands, but very, but with very little local presence, especially true for emerging markets. We remember we had to take a lot of inventory risks by sort of buying up some MOQs, minimum order quantities for some very, very globally successful smartphone brands, which didn't necessarily have a very robust um, authorized distribution network in the Sri Lankan market. We realized that, wow, we, we, we're going to take very significant inventory risks. And I think going into the market, we were pretty confident that there would be some big authorized distributors that we could just tap into, but didn't seem to be the case. And I think just having access to the right brands and the right inventory is also sometimes a challenge in this space.
There are always people who are sourcing new ideas from other geographies in the past from the US and bringing that to Southeast Asia and also now looking at China and other places and seeing if that can be localized to the local economy, for example, in Southeast Asia. What advice would you give to an entrepreneur like that? I would say don't make the cardinal mistake of um, having a solution in search of a problem. Make sure that you work backwards, study the local market, study what the pain points are in, in reality. Then if there are some globally proven business models that are correct fit, then more power to you and that approach can absolutely work. But just because you know a trend has taken off in China, it doesn't necessarily mean that Southeast Asia must follow in its footsteps. There could be a lot of local factors that have led to that trend taking off in that market and never sort of confuse a, a necessary regions following each other's business models. I think that doesn't necessarily hold true. That is often a mistake that a lot of starry-eyed entrepreneurs make with their thinking of new ideas. Earlier, you talked about the long tail of e-commerce being an important aspect. And I can just imagine the interactive distribution and you just discuss sourcing and even marketing. Talk to us about what that long tail looks like. So I think very interesting statistic that I heard from a from, from someone who is working in the Southeast Asian e-commerce landscape is almost 35% of all products that are actually being sold across Southeast Asia, across markets like Indonesia, Thailand, Philippines are from this specific long tail. So these are effectively small retailers, resellers, maybe some wholesalers in the mix that are either selling unbranded inventory or effectively extremely local brands with no significant brand recall. The fact that they've been able to get some revenue and get some sales is effectively because they're able to tap into this captive audience that is present on all these different marketplaces. So in, in that sense, e-commerce has been a strong equalizer in terms of, you know, very small brands getting the same level of reach that these big brands have traditionally enjoyed over the last couple of decades. It has created some really unique opportunity to, to go and serve the pain points for this long tail, both in the sense of giving them alternate channels of distribution, such as via social commerce, or even sort of working with them and giving them cost-effective digitization tools, which help them in better procurement, which again, this is the service or this is something that the big brands have traditionally enjoyed just because of the large economies of scale that they have. So I think the, the long tail or serving the long tail has uh, emerged as a very big opportunity. I think especially now that this long tail has such high volumes being sold on uh, thanks to all these e-commerce platforms. So I think it's created a lot of new opportunities for entrepreneurs who want to get into uh, serving the long tail, yeah. This time being COVID, and we've definitely seen the deferring impact, right? Where places like Vietnam, which never went into a lockdown, not seeing a tremendous shift in the mix of retail between offline and offline to other countries that have had a much longer lockdown, who are seeing a much more fundamental shift. When we look beyond, you know, into 2021 and beyond, how do you think this event and the mix between offline and online retail, how do you see that shaping out? I think the common thinking in this domain has been that as we, I guess, progress through the coming decades, the share of online to offline retail would keep on inching up. And I don't necessarily disagree with that trend. I probably disagree at the pace with which that ratio is going to go up. I feel that 
offline retail is still going to be super strong, especially in emerging markets, wherein there is a strong need to have a face-to-face relation with your local mom and pop shop. You've, you've grown up in that community and that is the shop that you go to buy your products, whether it's local products or whether it's your fresh fruits and vegetables or your gro- your groceries. And I think there is still going to be a significant space for that to happen. I guess what will change is a lot of the tools uh, that help in creating more value in the supply chain by removing some of the points of friction would be more democratized and easily available to this long offline tail, so to speak. Just because of the fact that now those guys will get access to these tools, they'll become more competitive vis-a-vis some of their online vendors that, that are selling exclusively online. And I think that will actually make the trend of online to offline retail actually slow down after a few years once these tools are sort of widespread. I think some really good examples of such technologies already doing the rounds are you know within the b2c community in in india like for startups by like khatabook this amazing super intuitive tool for small vendors um, that are part of the long offline deal you know have a very easy ledger system with their customers it helps them increase their collection rates their retention rates and you know gives them a very strong tool to sort of compete against the online vendors that are offering the same services or same products. So I think those trends would accelerate in the coming future and you would see some sort of a point of equilibrium being established between online and offline retail. You're one of the few people who have done multiple general manager PL roles in technology. What would you say differentiates a PL general manager role from a more functional one? I think trying to do a PNL role is trying to be the orchestra master, wherein you know you need to take care of the bass and the, the drums and, and the violins and everything. Whereas when you're just focusing on a function, let's say commercials, then you're just focusing on you know your violin and how what the notes need to sound like, when you need to pause and when you need to start again. Just the fact that there are so many things to focus on sometimes make the PNL ownership component a bit more challenging. You have to you have to make sure that everybody is adding value as as a team, and there's a lot of synergy in your team rather than just trying to optimize for your own specific function and your own OKRs and your own KPIs. I think that aspect is one core point of differentiation. And obviously, the other thing is when you have a lot of uh, senior people that you're working with, and they are really really good in their own specific domain, whether it's commercials, operations, marketing. There's there's a lot of management of of people's egos and their own personalities, which in a small function might not necessarily create conflict because there's a very clear line of you know reporting, so to speak. But when you're dealing with let's say someone who's a head of commercials and a head of operations and a head of marketing, and they might have differing perceptions, which might be right in their own you know based on their own thinking and their own experience. But, you know, you have to figure out a very uh, logical way of uh, making sure that they align with the company's vision, which may or may not necessarily overlap with their own thinking or their own understanding. So just navigating that is sometimes a bit trickier when you're, when you're owning a PNL. You've also had opportunity to push turnarounds and fix things on a product and a market level. What advice would you give to a startup founder or executive or general manager who needs to turn around a business for whatever reason, you know, COVID or, you know, business line or, you know, unit economics? What would you think about? Sure. 
I think it's super important to figure out what are the drivers that were that were available and what actually led to this situation that the business needs a turnaround to begin with. So I think really going into the unit economics and understanding, okay, what has the lifetime value been like vis-a-vis the customer acquisition costs? How can we optimize the CAC or increase the average revenue per user? I think fundamentally understanding those levers. And again, the cost to benefit to play out each of those levers is super important. So you can optimize your ARPU by having a very long-term high investment project, which may or may not necessarily be fruitful in the short term, but might yield dividends at a much higher risk in the long term. So it's also about managing, okay, what are some of the low-hanging fruits that I can go after to get a quick fill-up in the beginning, but at the same time, also plan for long-term strategic investments so that this turnaround is not short-lived, but has future opportunity to grow. So I think it's really critical to understand what the market that you're playing in looks like, not just today, but also three, five years down the line. And what are some of the tools that you can build to better support both vendors and solve some of the pain points that your customers have? People who are coming to a turnaround and let's just say they execute the business analysis and understanding and planning, as you just described, how would they then think about the talent and morale of the workforce that they are taking over or having to push in a new direction? What advice would you give to them? That's that's a very good question. That is one of the trickiest things because typically companies that require a turnaround are suffering from incredibly low employee morale simply because a lot of the staff has been laid off because you know I think that is the first button that people push that, oh, let's just lay off staff and let's just cut our costs. And then it gives us more runway and then we can figure out things. And I think that creates a very negative environment where it's effectively people against each other. And they're basically thinking who should go, who should be fired. And it's super hard when you take over such a cultural legacy and you try to completely reshape the conversation towards, okay, this is what the next three to five years for the company looks like. And these are the short-term, medium-term, and long-term goals. These are the skill sets or the talents that are absolutely essential to achieving this goal. And having a very frank and open conversation with your staff and saying that, okay, these are the mistakes that have happened, but this is what we want to do going forward. And uh, we need your buy-in. Otherwise, there's no way we're going to get to that. I think those one-to-one open conversations are super important if you have any chance of sort of turning around your staff morale and again, you know, uniting, pe- uniting people under a common banner. Many of our founder friends and tech executives are doing the business push and the team push. And one of the things they also talk about with us is how to manage their own psychology and equilibrium. What advice would you give to them? I think it's super important to be very truthful and honest with yourself about why you're doing what you're doing. Always reminding yourself about that whenever you feel too bogged down or too demotivated and you don't want to get out of bed and you don't want to be the only advocate that is rallying with the war cry wherein everybody is not necessarily supportive of you. It's it's super important to write that down somewhere and be super honest with yourself and always open that piece of paper or look at that whiteboard again and again and remind yourself why you've taken this 
harder path in life wherein you could have just found a cushy job at some consulting firm or or at an investment bank or some fortune 500 and why you actually took took this path uh, people could have different reasons some people might be completely mission oriented and they want to transform society some people might be doing it out of more personal motivations some people just want a holiday uh, post 35 and invest in smart founders and just just have those interesting conversations again everybody might have different motivations but it's super important to keep going back to that and say this is why i'm doing this and whatever is happening to me uh, right now has no bearing on my long term aspirations that i see for myself and i think once you have those honest conversations i think those give you the right support to you know then go back and face those challenging times which will definitely happen and you will always have your lows for sure how do you personally unwind day to day so i i i sort of function like a like a sine curve i don't have a very good day to day unwinding mechanism i often have my own phases where i would effectively not work for like 2 3 days 4 days i would just engage in like 16 18 hour gaming marathons i would just pick out some you know strategy game or a rpg game and just just mindlessly game and and just completely blow off steam and then i would become amazingly productive for a f- almost you know not just a few weeks but a few months that's how i manage which is very unusual and very impractical advice and i recognize that but it might be practical for some of your more younger unmarried listeners but uh, yeah uh, my girlfriend hates that so yeah it's, it comes with its own set of risks one last question you know uh, listeners have asked about how successful tech executives and founders balance obviously their hobbies and professional careers and they've also asked about relationships so for the first time ever I'm asking you and anyone on the show would be what advice would you give for people who are looking to balance or integrate their relationship into everything oh wow that's a really hard question i would take a step back and actually say that make sure you have a partner that is an enabler that understands your ambitions in life and what motivates you accepts you for all your impractical sine wave blowing off steam and then is somehow still able to appreciate the the times when you're able to you know actually be there and not just be there but also you know give them your undivided attention so i think it's really about being truthful and honest with your partner and saying this is who i am this is how i function and this is what i want to do in life would you be my enabler would you be supportive i, I think as long as your partner is okay with that i think it's a lot easier to to have a work life balance uh, i guess when it comes to relationships but if you have a partner that doesn't fundamentally align with that then it's just going to be a lot trickier Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sarab. It's a pleasure to have you on the show.